you're listening to Radio Maria, and this is Father Toby with the Friar side. And uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, the the resurrection and uh, and motives for belief belief in in the resurrection. Um, if you were if you were listening in yesterday, you would have heard me talk about uh, first the the importance of actually understanding what the resurrection isn't and and what it what it is and we were talking about this isn't Jesus's uh, spirit just being present among the the disciples this is not Jesus appearing as a as a ghost rather this is this is Jesus risen body and soul from the grave risen glorified risen not just resuscitated um Lazarus was sort of resuscitated and and would and would die again, but Jesus is 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 risen, um, and will not die. And uh, and as we will celebrate um, shortly, he will ascend into heaven, um, where he lives and reigns there now, but is still present among us through uh, through the church that he he founded, his 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 sacrament on earth, and making his his power and his presence uh, communicable uh, to us through his. Uh, dwelling in us through the holy spirit and also through the sacraments and then we started to excuse me speak about why people would um believe in the in in the resurrection and i was uh using uh well i sorry i i spoke first of all about why the resurrection is our ultimate hope um i'd spoken a little bit about the BBC program, the pilgrimage that I'd been watching, and how everybody there seemed to think that actually the the important thing in life was to was to be kind. Um, and whilst having no issues whatsoever with being kind, I said that 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 the putting kindness as a sort of a primary value raises the question of what does it mean to be kind. And in order to know how to be kind, I have to know what sort of thing a thing is to know. What it what it what it needs and what its flourishing um, consists in. Because if I try and give you know fish food to my dog or vice versa, things won't go very well for uh, either of those animals. And that as human beings, we're you know far more complex um, than either a fish or a dog. And so you know there's a spiritual side to us which needs which needs nurturing and and, and nourishing. And, uh, and and what hurts us most, I guess, is is death. Um, and we, we, we suffer in, in our own death, but we also suffer especially in the death of uh, those, we, those we love who we're now separated from bodily. And, and kindness cannot fill this, uh, this gap and this pain that death creates. Um, the only thing that can come into that is our hope in the, in the, in the, in the resurrection. Um, and without the resurrection of, of of Jesus from the dead, then we live in a, a sort of a, a vague hope, a hope that actually has no no substance, no content um, to it. Whereas uh, with the with the the resurrection having happened, and with uh, Christ's uh, promise to us that you know he goes he goes he goes before us, um, we can can have hope. Um, but then I said, well, we need to need to examine like why do some people not believe in the in the resurrection, um, and why might we say that our that our belief in the resurrection is is reasonable, um, and what we won't be able to do is to uh, sort of 
demonstrate uh, physically that the resurrection ab- actually happened because um, it had it's happened it's happened in the past and we can't go back into the into the into the past um, and re-examine the evidence but rather we still have a number of uh, what traditionally in, in apologetics we call motives of of credibility and we said that the most common motive that people uh, use to uh, to argue for the reasonableness of belief in the resurrection is how the lives of the uh, the apostles and the disciples and the early christian community were radically transformed uh, after the resurrection versus before it um, the gospels de- depict um, a fair degree of quite understandable cowardice amongst uh, amongst most of the apostles at the time of the the passion and the crucifixion um, and a fair bit of confusion in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection and yet very shortly afterwards uh, these people go and do incredible things for god and they are prepared to lay down their lives for it um, and in looking at what could bring about such a change um only the resurrection seems to be a, an adequate answer to it and all the other reasons that people seem to suggest um for why the uh, why the apostles would make up the resurrection um don't account for uh for why they would die where they would die um for the sake of the the risen christ and so that's the the major motive of credibility that people largely argue for but as i said bram petra in his excellent book uh, the case for jesus the biblical and historical evidence for christ um he he invites us to examine more closely the the motive of credibility which is uh, the resurrection as fulfillment of the of the of the scriptures but before we go into that i just want to share with you a, a bit of a reflection of a, a a favorite theologian of mine um lawrence feingold who was a a secular um, Jew, and uh, in very sort of beautiful and, and poignant circumstances, uh, ended up coming to belief in the in the in the Christian God. Um, I might share his conversion story on on air uh, sometime and read you through it. But if you want to have a go and a look for yourselves, if you if you go on the website Hebrew Catholic, you can come across Lawrence Feingold and his conversion and it's it's absolutely stunning might even make you want to want to cry but he has a a series of excellent books called the the mystery of israel and the church and in uh, and in volume two things new and old he examines the the virtue of faith in biblical judaism biblical judaism and catholicism and he looks at motives of credibility and he asks how do we evaluate the trustworthiness of witnesses to God's revelation. He said, in order to believe in a divine testimony, it is certainly not necessary that God appear to us directly. God ordinarily speaks to us through intermediaries, such as the prophets and apostles, who are entrusted with a divine mission of being mediators and instruments of God's revelation. And this point about mediation is so so important um because i think in our in our in our culture at the moment we we recoil against the idea of mediation 
um, we think we should have sort of direct access and uh, and and that's and that's present in a lot of Protestant theology um, which says sort of God yes Jesus yes church no um, priesthood no um, magisterium no um, and leads to this some sort of direct uh, rather aggressive questioning about do you have a personal relationship with Jesus to which the Catholic answer is yes I I receive Jesus um, in his person in the in the blessed sacrament at the mass but that personal relationship with Jesus is is mediated through the through the through the church um, mediated to me through my my baptism um, mediated to me through the body of Christ to which I I belong and this desire to to go it alone um, doesn't go well and just leads to further fragmentation but how do we know which people who claim to be mediators of God we can trust and which we which we shouldn't um, uh, that's a really important question and obviously there are a lot of people who propose uh, different religious truths to us um, how would we discern between them so he said when God speaks through intermediaries it must be possible to recognize that they truly have a divine commission Otherwise, it would be extremely imprudent to believe, for we could be deceived by any charlatan or honestly deluded person into believing all kinds of absurdities, which indeed we can observe all around us in the multiplication of religious beliefs and sects. And as G.K. Chesterton said, you know, it's not um, when you stop believing in, in God, you stop uh, um uh, that you just stop believing in God, rather you start believing in anything. Um, and as you look around the, sort of the proliferation of just vague, weird beliefs that, that, it, that exist now in our, in our, in our world, um, yeah, it, that, I think that, that statement of Chesterton has been, has been borne out. Um, and, and the important point that, that Feingold makes is that the religious faith um, proper religious faith. It it's not a something which should be entered into rashly. Um, we have a responsibility as as human beings who've been created for the truth. We have a responsibility to to seek out the truth. Um, and if we don't do that, then we're we're failing to to exercise this incredible sort of faculty of the intellect that God that God has has given us. And um, and then we risk living in a way which is sort of less than what we've been called to and given that god has given us this this intellect and given the way god has has chosen to work through his his revelation he he has to sort of in, in fairness give us some way of discerning between what is good and what isn't and so he says therefore prophets and apostles must come equipped with divine credentials and he says these divine credentials are motives of credibility that allow us to make the transition from human faith in the word of a prophet to divine faith in God who speaks through the prophet. Motives of credibility are therefore their supernatural signs that show the action of God by transcending the power of all natural causes. We generally call such signs miraculous, signs of God's intervention above the natural order of things. And he says the motives of credibility are principally three. Miracles, prophecies, and the witness of the people of God 
in the Old and New Covenants, Israel and the Church. Um, I think I've spoken about the, the motive of credibility of, of miracles before, and it's something I'd like to speak about more. The witness of the people of, of God, well, we've, we've spoken a little bit about that at the top of this program when I was speaking about uh, lives transformed by the, by the resurrection. But what we're going to do in the, in the remainder of the program is to look at the, uh, the motive of credibility, which is uh, prophecy and specifically Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Um, but before we do that, we're, we're going to uh, listen to uh, another setting of uh, Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat. Um, I've been enjoying going through uh, lots of... Uh, different uh, versions of these uh, wonderful lines which you know Christ has conquered Christ reigns Christ rules
listening to Radio Maria, and this is Father Toby with the Friarside, where we're discussing the the resurrection. Um, we've just been speaking about motives of of credit of credibility for for Christian faith, um, and following Lawrence Feingold, we said that there are, there are three principal motive, motives of credibility. Uh, there's the, the the happening of miracles. Um, there's the 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 witness. Of the of the the people of God in the Old and the New Testaments, and then there is also the witness of prophecy, and we're just going to um, follow Feingold through on his introduction to the to the witness of prophecy and why this is a motive of credibility, and then we're going to look at uh, at Brampetra on uh, the the sign of the sign of the sign of Jonah, and how this Old Testament prophecy and Christ's explicit reference uh, to it um uh, is is the is the the greatest um uh prophetic uh f- fulfillment and uh, greatest motive of credibility for belief in Christ's revelation on the basis of fulfillment of prophecy so Feingold says that since god alone is omniscient that is since god alone knows everything seeing the entire course of human history in his eternal present, God alone can foretell future events with certainty. If a prophet does so, it is a sign that God is speaking through him. And Moses speaks of the witness of prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 to 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Then Feingold goes on, It was through this witness of prophecy that the true prophets were distinguished from the false ones in ancient Israel. You know, essentially if a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't, well then don't believe them when they claim to be speaking on behalf of God. Obviously we do also have to distinguish between the the prophet who says something will certainly happen and the prophet who says something will happen unless you change your behavior. Um, you know, if the behavior changes, then it's quite right that the, the content of the, of the prophecy, normally some form of punishment doesn't, doesn't occur. That doesn't, that doesn't go against the, uh, the sort of the veracity of, of that particular prophet. And so he says the true prophets were those whose prophecies were fulfilled in their proper time. The foretelling of the Babylonian captivity and the earlier deportation of the ten northern tribes was a great test for the truth of a prophet. For example, the prophet Jeremiah foretold the Babylonian captivity with precision, for which he had to suffer greatly at the hands of the rulers, lured on by false prophets. And and that's another uh, thing, actually, which, which speaks a little bit to the the credibility of a prophet whether they're they're prepared to speak on unpopular truths and given them by god and then prepared to, to suffer to suffer for it um that's that speaks a little bit to that third category of um of motive of credibility that find god gives which is the actual witness of the of the person but here we're we're more concerned not with the the way that the person acts but with the content of what they prophesy um, so he says that Jeremiah even foretold the length of time that Israel would, Israel would remain in Babylon. 
roughly 70 years. And then the prophet Isaiah also foretold the exile and the return, even mentioning the name of the Persian king who would allow them to return to the Holy Land and rebuild the temple, Cyrus. The prophet Daniel made precise prophecies about the succession of Persian kings, followed by the conquest of Alexander and the tribulations under Antiochus in the Maccabean period. Unfortunately, not a few biblical exegetes, that's an exegete is somebody who sort of interprets um, the, the Bible, who tries to, to help us bring out the, the meaning of a text. Um, but unfortunately, there's quite some number of these who do not believe that all of what Feingold has just stated are true prophecies. And they suppose that they were written down after the events that they foretell. Feingold says he does not agree with such doubts, for such pseudo-prophecies written after the event would not have been accepted as true prophecies and accorded such veneration as the word of God. However, there is one case in which the supposition of pseudo-prophecy, of prophecy given after the event, is absolutely impossible, the coming of the Messiah. For it is certain that the entirety of the Old Testament was written before the birth of Christ. Hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah can be found in the Old Testament, spanning 2,000 years. Thus, the greatest motive of credibility for the Old Testament is its prophecies of Christ, and the great motive of credibility in Christ is that his coming was foretold in so many marvellous ways. Again, we see that the Old and New Testament witness forms an indestructible harmony, such that each reinforces the other. Um, what we'll do now is, uh, is go and have a listen to, uh, to Brant Pietre um, on uh, the Old Testament prophecy of, of God, which he, uh, the Old Testament prophecy of the resurrection, which he thinks Jesus makes explicit reference to the, the, sign, of, the sign of Jonah. Um, and how this is borne out in the in the life of Christ. Before we do that, we're just going to listen to one more uh, piece of chant this time, uh, the Regina Chaley, which we sing in the in the church in in Easter Tide, which has those beautiful words. You know, he's he's resurrected as he said, resurrexit sicut dixit. Toby with the Fryside, and as I said, we're now going to turn to uh, Brant Petra, and we're going to look at uh, at his writing on the the sign of Jonah as a motive for credibility in the truth of the resurrection. Um, 
Because not a lot of people, when you when you when you said to them, "Well, which of the scriptures did Jesus's resurrection fulfill?" Um, many people wouldn't have a quick answer for you. And he says, in fact, this is where lots of contemporary scholars um, fall silent. They aren't sure what scripture is being referenced to when it's said that Jesus was raised on the third day, as St. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, we don't find any explicit prophecy of the Messiah being resurrected on the third day. We can look at the numerous um, messianic prophecies, um, and around Easter time, we might especially turn in the church in the church in the in the readings proposes to us reflection on the suffering servant in Isaiah as a prophecy of Christ. But what about the resurrection of Christ? He says the closest you'll get in the in the Old Testament is perhaps an obscure passage from the book of Hosea, which speaks about a group of people, sort of we being raised up to life on the third day. You'll find that in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. But he says the problem with citing this passage is that it seems to refer to the resurrection of the people of Israel using the image of coming back to life to describe the regathering of the 12 tribes. So what scripture then is Jesus' resurrection on the third day supposed to fulfill? And Peter says that in order to answer this, we have to go back to the teachings of Jesus. And he says if we do this, there's only one passage from Jewish scripture that Jesus cites as a direct prophecy of his resurrection on the third day. We can speak of other times when Jesus speaks about his, his rising, rising from the, the dead. Um, for example, we might think of the, 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 the destruction of the, of the, of the temple, um, or the, sorry, the, 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 cle- the clearing out of the, tent, the temple, and when Jesus speaks about tearing down the temple and it being built again three, three, days, three days later. But that's not a citation of an Old Testament prophecy. That's Jesus prophesying about himself, which he obviously fulfills. And that is a motive of, of credibility. Um, but uh, I don't think it's powerful um, as, as pointing back to, to, the, to, the Old, to the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so here he says there's one passage from Jewish scripture that Jesus cites as a direct prophecy. The so-called sign of Jonah, which is recorded in, in Matthew 12. Uh, verses 38 to 41 and in Luke chapter 11 12 to I mean Luke chapter 11 verses 29 to 32 and so let's read um, together from Matthew's account then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him teacher we wish to see a sign from you but he answered them an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is the meaning then of this mysterious sign of Jonah? 
And what does it have to do with the resurrection of the Son of Man after three days in the heart of the earth? Well, I think in order to do this, we need to go back and actually read the the book of the book of the book of Jonah, because I don't think normally when we read um, when we think of of Jonah um, being in the in the in the belly of the whale, the scripture speaks about uh, a fish, but conventionally we we think of it in terms of a, a whale. We think of him being a, a, alive in there, and so probably doesn't seem a, a, a resurrection other than in a sort of a certain metaphorical sense in being trapped inside a, a tomb. But I don't think we think of Jonah as actually having died. Um, but Petra says that if we read the book of Jonah carefully, we'll discover something interesting. The author of the book never claims that Jonah remained alive for three days and three nights in the fish. As he said, that's what's all in the children's Bibles and movies, and uh, that's what most sermons say but not actually the text. And he says, if we look at the text, we'll find that it's pretty explicit, in fact, that Jonah died and went to the realm of the dead. So uh, let's, uh, let's go back and have a look um, at it ourselves. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice. The waters closed in over me, the deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And there are, there are three um, key points um, that Petra helps us take out from this passage that we might on a, on a quick, um, quick sort of passing think, oh, well, you know, uh, Jonah didn't actually die. Um, but it's important first that when Jonah says he cried out, from, to, cried out to God from the belly of Sheol and the pit, that these are standard Old Testament terms for the realm of the dead. Um, in the Apostles' Creed, we speak properly of actually Jesus descending to, to Sheol um, rather than, than, to, than to hell. Um, second, when Jonah says that his soul fainted within him, this is another way of saying that he died. In other words, Jonah's prayer is the last gasp of a dying man. And thus, when the fish vomits Jonah out into the land, it is vomiting up his corpse. And then he says, finally, with all this in mind, we can notice what God's first word to Jonah is, arise. And this is the same Semitic word that Jesus uses when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead and says to her, Kalith talitha kumi, meaning, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
In other words, the story of Jonah is the story of his death and resurrection. But that's not all, because for any first century Jew, they would have known the climax of the book of Jonah is not his miraculous arising after being vomited out by the fish. It is the even more rem- the even more remarkable um, repentance of the Gentile city of Nineveh. Because in response to the preaching of Jonah, the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Even the pagan king of Nineveh is said to have covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes before commanding his entire people to cry mightily to God. It is hard to overstate how staggering this would be to a first century Jewish reader who would have known that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was one of Israel's fiercest pagan enemies. This is a much more remarkable repentance than we normally think about it. And so once we have the identity identity of the Ninevites clear, it becomes apparent that the real miracle in the book of Jonah is the repentance, one might even say the conversion of the Gentiles. And so what does this all mean for how Jesus understands his own death and resurrection? Well, I'd say that once the biblical background of his proclamation about Jonah is clear, then everything he says makes perfect sense. To begin with, the scribes and the Pharisees demand a sign from Jesus. That is a miracle of some sort meant to prove who he really is. And in response, Jesus declares that the only sign that will be given to his generation is the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is this miraculous sign? Well, scholars debate whether it refers to the miraculous rescue of Jonah or the miraculous repentance of the Gentiles. And I'd say here, the properly Catholic response is so often is not either or, but both and. The answer is both. The same thing is the true sign of the Son of Man. The sign of Jonah is both the resurrection of the Son of Man on the third day and the repentance of the Gentiles that will follow his resurrection. And so we can consider the the parallels between the sign of Jonah and the resurrection of Jesus. So first the sign of Jonah with the death and resurrection after three days in Sheol, and then the sign of uh, the Son of Man, the death and resurrection after three days in the tomb. And then the sign of Jonah, we have second the repentance of the Ninevites in response to his preaching And then we have with the sign of Jesus' resurrection, well, we have the repentance of the Gentiles in response uh, to his his preaching. We're just going to take another short break from our treatment of um, this sort of fulfillment of the the prophecy. Um, Hopefully it's all making sense to you. Um, If it's not, um, or if you have any comments on what we've discussed so far, then please do give me a call. The number's... 01223 That's 01223 um, But uh, we'll listen now to uh, the, the wonderful uh, Scola um, Voces 8 with their uh, setting of the Regina Chaley, and then we'll return afterwards shortly, and in the time that remains, just uh, finish off this account of uh, how the shine of Jonah is fulfilled in Christ. Thank 
Listening to Radio Maria, and uh, this is the Fry side, and we're just now in the in the minutes that remain, going to finish off our treatment of the sign of Jonah. The sign, the sign of Jonah, and the uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. So, what do these parallels mean um, that we've just drawn between the sign of Jonah and the sign of the Son of Man? What do they mean for what Jesus is saying about his own resurrection? Well, the answer is simple, but significant. According to Jesus, it is not just his resurrection from the dead that will be a reason for believing in him. It is also the inexplicable conversion of the pagan nations of the world, the Gentiles. As Jesus says, the pagans repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In Jonah's case, only one Gentile city repents, and that only for a time. In Jesus' case, countless Gentile nations, cities, even empires would go on to repent, cast away their idols, and turn to the gods of Israel. And Peter points out that for whatever reason, many modern Christians have forgotten this point. We seem to take it for granted that literally, literally billions of non-Jews that is, Gentiles, have abandoned centuries and centuries of idol worship and turned to the worship of the one true God of Israel. This is an astonishing fact. Um, the, the, the impact of Christ's resurrection on the history of the world is absolutely unprecedented. And this was a man who wielded no human um power no political power and here, here we, we have we have to be very very sort of honest and explicit about this thing if you if you say if you say to me oh but father look at the spread of look at the spread of islam and look how uh, look look how islam has taken root in so many parts of the world and without doubting the religious conviction of of millions of muslims around the world if you look at the spread of islam it's spread by the sword Muhammad conquers people and imposes Islam upon upon them. And yes, Christians have used um, violence and, and persecution in in the name in the name of in the name of Christ um, despicably and to our shame in the century since. 
But let's look at the initial spread of Christianity. And the initial spread of Christianity is, is peaceably. There is no political power being being used to, to spread it, rather the, the political powers subsequently adopt what the people have already adopted. Um, and the, and the, the early church, um, largely comprising of, uh, of, of Jews who accepted Christ, um, they didn't forget this, this remarkable spread. Over and over again, whenever the early church fathers wanted to make the case for the messiahship, the divinity and the resurrection of Jesus, they did not, as of general rule, point to the evidence for the empty tomb or the reliability of the eyewitnesses. They did not get into arguments about historical probability and evidence and such. Instead, they simply pointed to the pagan world around them that was crumbling to the ground as Gentile nations that had worshipped idols and gods and goddesses for millennia somehow inexplicably repented turned and began worshipping the God of the Jews. In the words of the 4th century writer Ambrose of Milan, the mystery of the church is clearly expressed in Jesus' words about the sign of Jonah. Her flocks stretch from the boundaries of the whole world. They stretch to Nineveh through penitence. The mystery is now fulfilled in truth. And then even more stunning, and I'm just going to close with, with this, the observations of the 4th century historian uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, who penned these unforgettable words. Behold how today, yes, in our own times, our eyes see not only Egyptians, but every race of men who used to be idolaters, released from the errors of polytheism, and the demons and calling on the God of the prophets. Yes, in our own time, the knowledge of the omnipotent God shines forth and sets a seal of certainty on the forecasts of the prophets. You see this actually going on. You no longer only expect to hear of it, and if you ask the moment when the change began, for all your inquiry, you will receive no other answer but the moment of the appearance of the Saviour. And who would not be struck by the extraordinary change that men who for ages have paid divine honour to wood and stone and demons, wild beasts that feed on human flesh, poisonous reptiles, animals of every kind, repulsive monsters, fire and earth and the lifeless elements of the universe, should, after our Saviour's coming, Pray to the Most High God, Creator of heaven and earth, the actual Lord of the prophets, and the God of Abraham and his forefathers. And there are many other church fathers who we could cite to the same effect, and we should never lose sight of what an absolutely astonishing thing the uh, the spread of the spread of, uh, of of the church, the conversion of the Gentile nations to the truth of Christ is. Um, so I hope you found that uh, an, an interesting um, examination of one of our our greatest uh, motives for credibility in the in the belief of the of the resurrection. Um, if you have any questions, you can always contact me um, on the, the, at info at radiomariaengland.uk, or you can uh, you can save your questions up, which I'd love, and then call into uh, questions of faith on Friday and give us any resurrection questions that you have.
Radio Maria in